Blog Talk Radio. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk the Podcast. I wonder if you can hear the wind howling. <laughs> I'm sitting looking outside the door of our uh, office for our publishing company, and oh my goodness, it is just blowing and blowing and blowing. So if it gets too noisy or if it turns somehow imminently dangerous, <laughs> we may cut the show off. Uh, sooner than we normally do, but hopefully that won't happen. All right, today we are continuing our topic of answering questions that I sent out to readers to subscribe to my email series, and I did that, oh gosh, over a month ago now, and just got fabulous questions, and we're trying to whittle away at those, and again, I just want to thank you so much if you're one of the people who sent those in. And so today we're taking two very different questions, and let's just dive right in with the first one. She says, I'm a speech pathologist from Melbourne, Australia. So hello to you on the other side of the world. She said, I've just started doing some private practice uh, speech pathology work this year, and most of my new little friends are two- and three-year-olds on the autism spectrum. Your podcasts have been amazing in getting me prepared to talk to parents about social games and pre-linguistic skills. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Many of my clients have already been diagnosed with ASD or nonverbal. They're coming to speech therapy for the first time at the clinic, and the only information I receive before their first appointment is two-year-old with autism, not yet talking. My question is, what does your very first session look like when you have very little information about a child? I'd love to hear a podcast outlining what you do in that first session when you're meeting with a child and their family. And she asked some questions about that, and that's what we'll do is just walk through her questions. But let me skip to the end where she's saying something super, super important, and I want to be sure that I don't forget it. She says, from your podcast, I know that you always find out what the child loves. So I've incorporated this into my first session and found it really useful in helping to plan future sessions. And then she goes on to close and say, I'd love to hear what else you prioritize in that first session. So let's just walk through her questions. Her first one was really specific. Do you do a case history? Now, unless you are in private practice, you probably do get some kind of better information <laughs> about the child than Emma is getting with her kids from, I assume that she's just getting referrals from physicians or perhaps psychologists. I'm not sure what the their system is like in Australia and who is the primary generator of referrals to an SLP when there is a language problem and when autism is first uh, identified and diagnosed. But usually, most of the time, we will get some kind of information. Um, and, and lots of us, too, some of these questions, you're going to realize if you are a therapist practicing, you have very little control <laughs> over what you get or don't get. And so this may be so far out of the realm of possibility for you because a kid comes to you, you know, with a complete referral packet or a referral document that you get to review but Emma is a lot like me in private practice and you know you just get you can either get a book about a kid or nothing so here's how I handle that I do go ahead and get a case history but I send it before the appointment so I just have a really 
simple kind of narrative form that I just created myself. I don't really share it with people because it's, <laughs> if you saw it, you might not be that impressed. <laughs> but it's just asking, you know, really, the, again, those representative questions that we all ask about birth history, about pre any kind of prenatal events that happen that might be important, things like that. I do ask about milestones, motor as well as cognitive and uh, communicative milestones. Certainly have some of that on there. But I do a lot of asking, like Emma already pointed out, what are this child's favorite things to do? What does he like to eat? What does he like to watch TV-wise? And that kind of is a better uh, way to ask it than do you let your child watch too much TV or does he stay on his iPad all day? <laughs> Sometimes parents don't quite want to tell you this, what's really going on about that because they know that they've overused that and feel some reluctance to share that with you. And, you know, I get that. My goodness, when I go to a professional appointment, you know, just think about going to the dentist and the hygienist says, you know, how often do you floss? Or are you flossing twice a day or whatever? You get a little embarrassed when you know gosh, I'm not quite meeting my own expectations here, and I'm not sure I want this person to know it yet. And so that's okay. So you might figure out a way to kind of ask some of these things without being as confrontational or even appearing to be judgmental because you certainly don't want to start a relationship with a family with the, even their kind of preconceived opinions that they think that you are correcting them or that you are again, being a little judgmental, even in how you ask your initial questions. So, again, my case history form looks very, very um, family-friendly, I guess would be the best way to describe it, because I don't want parents to be put off with some of the questions, or I don't want them to feel any kind of unnecessary guilt or that I'm asking them with, you know, my eyebrow raised, <laughs> ready to say, well, no wonder he's not talking yet because you haven't blah, blah, blah. So you don't want to do that. But I just have a really simple case history form. I email it to the parents and I ask them to send it back to me before the appointment. I have good luck with that, really good compliance. But if I don't get it, I usually just call a few days ahead. And if I think I'm not going to get it for whatever reason, let's say a mom has just had another baby and I'm seeing the two-year-old or the three-year-old and I think, gosh, I just don't want to overload her, I might just run through the questions with her on the phone because I like to know what I'm getting into before a child gets there. And I also feel like that this is an opportunity to build some rapport with the parent and remember that my situation is a little bit different because of the success of the website and the DVDs and the YouTube and yada 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 a lot of times parents feel like they already know me so that usually results in them really letting their guard down and they're pretty chatty at the beginning but sometimes parents are kind of like I alluded to before worried about what you're going to say I have had some situations too with me being in private practice where grandparents are paying for the visit and the parents are coming because the grandparents have begged them and so sometimes you'll meet parents that are a little bit defensive at the beginning and boy if I sense that over the phone well let me just say it's so much better for me to feel that and know that before I see them so that I can do everything I can to make everybody comfortable. And so that just means that we're spending a little bit of time talking. And certainly it is impractical if you are in a 
you know, just the height of your busyness <laughs> with your own children. And certainly if you may not be able to have the luxury of calling every parent and having kind of a pre-telephone a appointment. And, and if you can't do it, if that doesn't work for you right now in your career, don't worry about it. Uh, and you may not even find it necessary, but I really like that. I like talking with them over the phone before they come so that I sort of can gauge what's going on and again eliminate any sort of potential issues that I found <laughs> that seem to happen and I'm a, a pretty good read of that so I can tell over the phone if someone is really cautious or if they are um, it, let's go the other way if they're super excited and super eager I want to know that too because that if if I'm feeling like right from the get-go, they're thinking, oh, she's going to have him talking in five minutes, and we're just going to be totally finished with this speech therapy thing in one visit. Ooh, <laughs> I want to know that, too, because that's completely unrealistic. And so I want to make sure that I'm managing expectations from the parents from the very, very beginning. And really, those phone calls can help you do that. Uh, you know, I wanted to mention, too, that years and years and years ago, gosh, I bet this has been 20 years ago now, maybe longer, I've heard, I was at Kentucky's uh, Speech and Hearing Annual Convention, and I heard a speech pathologist that I do not have a personal relationship with, but I admired her. You know, she's locally or was at that time locally, you know, kind of famous. We all know uh, therapists in our areas who have great reputations, and she certainly did. And she said that she never, ever read a case history before a child came or previous evaluations because she wanted to form her own opinion. And she just did not like being clouded by other people's judgments. And I certainly can appreciate that, but I like a little bit of that. Pre-knowledge. Now, we certainly sometimes will have these things happen, and boy, I've had that happen a lot since I've gone into private practice where I've read a report, and actually, you know what, it even happened before then too, where I would read a report that someone else did about a child, and I expected something totally different than the child that was before me <laughs> when he came to see me or I went to their homes. And sometimes I would even think, oh my goodness, did I get, did they send me the wrong report? Because this is not anything like I thought it would be. And sometimes it's just a matter of misinterpretation. You just read some things and you think they mean one thing when they mean something else. And sometimes we are, as therapists, more subjective than we think we are. And so perhaps a therapist, especially now if I'm thinking about children that I'm doing consultations on and they're coming to see me for several-day appointments, which I did for a while, you know, that, that situation a lot of the time I felt like reading the information that I got from therapists was not quite as helpful as I always thought it was going to be. So use your own judgment with that and decide what you uh, want to accomplish with that. And just, again, be, be careful about it, knowing that sometimes other people's opinions about a child may be completely different than what you end up seeing and thinking about the child with your own uh, clinical impressions. Now, during the appointment, I do take a lot of time to ask questions about the case history, especially in the same situation that we're talking about where things don't seem to be adding up or where there seem to be big differences. You know, maybe about receptive language, mom will say something like, and you know, if you're a therapist, just say it with me, he understands 
everything. <laughs> and the child comes in and you and he's following no directions or it's a little girl, you can't get her to do anything. She seems completely unaware. And so you start to really question those discrepancies that you're seeing. So I certainly like having a case. Then that lets me know mom thinks this, but I think this. And there's a gap there and you have to address it. And sometimes it's, it's a lot of times, it's just that I haven't gotten to know the child well enough. Sometimes it is that mom doesn't realize that there's a problem with receptive language. She thinks this is just an expressive language problem. And you want to know that because you want to tailor your comments and the things that you're saying so that you're asking lots and lots and lots of questions about a child's ability to respond to verbal directions. And you would just give lots and lots of examples and you would talk about it and then you would do things where you can say, you know, I just, hmm, I'm really sort of questioning here whether she really does understand me. And again, I'm talking about the child. I'm really, I, I know that you feel like she understands everything. So let's just, let's play together here. You you see if you can get her to do some things that I have not been able to get her to do because I'm, I'm thinking that she's not really understanding my words here. And that's a totally different problem than a child who is not talking and, and does have age-appropriate receptive language skills. So you see, you can, you can take what mom has written in a case history and then compare it to what you are seeing in front of you, and you know where you need to begin, especially with parent education. So think about that as well. And I, I want to hit this point one more time. Finding out a child's preferences before they come can be so helpful. Now, if you wait and do it at the first session, that's great, too, or the first few sessions. But that is such an important part of getting that little relationship going with a child if you have things that he or she already like to do whoo, you are in <laughs> you are their friend you are the giver of good things so try to make sure that you're incorporating that too and I kind of feel like you know sometimes I'll have a kid that just maybe doesn't like toys not you know a real limited range of preferences and then mom will say gosh do you have any you know whatever and I won't have it, but I'll think, darn it, I wish I had really made a point to ask about that or to pay closer attention and make sure that I had something that we could share that initial experience with. So be sure that you're doing that. All right, her next question. Do you do a Rosetti? And for those of you who are not speech pathologists, that's the Rosetti Infant Toddler Language Scale. It's the most widely used assessment for infants and toddlers in the world. And it's been around a long, long time. I've used it since the late 90s. And she says, do you do a Rosetti to find their skill level or do you primarily focus on interviewing the parent about your 11 pre-linguistic skills? Now, that 11 pre-linguistic skills is from my new therapy manual that was released in the fall of 2017, so last year. And that chart is what I use now. But, you know, you may be in a program where you can't do that and you don't have your luxury of deciding what you'll use for eligibility or deciding what your tool will be to decide definitively if you see a child if you will see a child for treatment or not now again those of us who are in private practice have a little more leeway about that but I like using the Rosetti and again I've used it forever I feel like it's so reliable much more so than any other assessments but the problem with the Rosetti is it's criterion referenced and so it's not standardized so some of you may not be able to use that test or use that tool and it doesn't matter you have to do whatever your program requires but if you don't have to do a formal assessment, 
and you are positioned that you're able to just do your own thing here. I love my charge, <laughs> if I do say so myself. So let's talk about talking because it really helps me focus on the specifics with pre-linguistic skills. And you know what? It gets parents kind of laser focused on that too. And it does, it goes beyond this is an expressive delay, this is a receptive delay, or even this is a speech disorder. It goes beyond that because you're really, really pinpointing exactly what's going on. And even though we're looking at things like receptive skills, expressive skills, that's what we get normally from an assessment we'll get a receptive score comprehension if you're a parent that doesn't mean a lot to you yet what a child understands versus expressive what they can say or how they can use gestures or body language or facial expressions to communicate a message to you certainly you're still going to get that information from using an informal assessment tool uh, but just make sure that you're explaining that to parents too and that you're basing your your overriding um, comment, like he has a language delay, or I suspect childhood apraxia speech, make sure that you have something to go on when you're saying that, even if it's informal, you'll want it. So be sure that you can quantify what your impressions are, even if you're not using a formal tool per se. And if, even if you are using standardized testing, be sure that you're explaining what those numbers mean. You know, the classic example is a percentile rank. You'll, you'll give a percentile rank with a child, and, and parents won't understand that, or a standard score, they don't understand that at all. So really talk about what those numbers mean and explain those things to parents so they get it. All right, next question. Do you do, you do any hands-on assessment with the child or mainly parent report? And let me just say both, and it depends on the kid. If I feel like a child is going to be slow to warm up to me, and a lot of times parents will say that. They'll say, you know, she's just a little on the shy side, and I just want you to warn you about that. And I have a question about that on the case history. I think I say, you know, describe her personality. And again, it's in a real informal way so that you're not asking anything that sounds <laughs> like there's a deficit from the get-go. You're not saying, is she antisocial? <laughs> so just ask things like, tell me about her personality. Tell me how she normally is when she first meets someone new. And that'll, that'll give you some idea of how long it will take. I almost always start with parents in that kind of situation. And those children tend to be clingier and don't even really want to explore. Even if you're in their own homes, they are a little... Uh, skittish and standoffish and that's okay again that's just their temperament so I start with parents there I really have blown it horrendously over the years with some kids trying to go in and do too much too fast and so when I sense that a child is like that or when there are sensory issues and a child is super super sensitive and hyper responsive to you know maybe not even new people just just demands being placed on him I try to really do everything I can to get off on the right foot with and I know that you know what I mean by that but just to not have any disasters happen <laughs> the first session. because that's really really hard to overcome kids remember and if, if you had a terrible time with them at the very beginning and the next time they see you they burst into tears you know that's going to be really really hard to overcome you're going to have to be super super awesome for that child to begin to like you and that's not that relations little relationships even with one and two and three-year-olds can't be redeemed they certainly can 
but I just really like to read the situation and not do anything at the beginning that might set off a kid or let him have a negative experience right off the bat with me. And again, how do I know that? Because I've learned it the hard way where I have not really paid as much attention to a kid's cues and just sort of thought, you know, here's my agenda here and gone in and done what I wanted to do without really, really thinking, what am I getting myself into here and planning what I'm going to do based on what I know about the kid. Now, on the other hand, there are some children that if you spend a lot of time talking to their parents, you totally lose them. And so the very best engagement that you'll get from them is, is starting, you know, right at the beginning. And if that's the case, and I've had that happen a lot with kids, you know, the, the, I'm going to see them or they're coming to see me and just immediately I have a good read on them and everybody's in a great mood and we're all regulated <laughs> and so they come in and they see something that I have or I just am able to kind of capture their initial interest with being playful and fun and a little game and so so I just with those kids boy I just hit the ground running if I can get that going from the very beginning you know why not and so as you are playing with them and interacting with them you can do a lot of talking to parents about it and saying you know is this how she normally is is this better than she normally is you know I'm seeing that you know whatever blah 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 blah. I'm hearing her try to imitate me a little bit is that normal for her and you can get lots of information from parents just as you are interacting and playing with the child and just saying you know is Tell me how this stacks up to what normally happens. You know, is this better? Is this worse? Is this about the same? So you'll get a ton of information from parents. But really try to, or I really try to base that hands-on versus parental report, especially at the beginning, on how the child is responding or how the parent's say that a child typically responds because again you don't want to do anything at the beginning that would create some um, frustration or some fear <laughs> on the part of the child and you certainly don't want it to go badly at the beginning it's even for the parents you don't want the parents thinking oh no this is terrible he doesn't like her or what is she going to and sometimes this has happened to me a lot especially after the success of the website parents will be so apologetic about their children and they'll say I just don't understand why she's acting this way today you know and I just think that is the that is just not warranted at all and you certainly want to alleviate a parent's concerns about that and say hey there I know there's some things that aren't as we expect or I wouldn't be here and so do everything you can to alleviate a parent's guilt or concern or fear or whatever seems to be going on right there and just talk about that with them so that they feel more comfortable all right so her next question do you try to start therapy in that first session so that parents have something to go away with. Yes, 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 always yes. <laughs> I always want to leave parents with a couple of things that they want to do for homework because I want parents to know from the very beginning that the more they buy into this and the more they participate and the more they do what I've asked them to do <laughs> or trust me, and we work together on what these strategies and activities and recommendations are going to be, 
that their child has a much better chance of making progress. Now, that's not to say that that kids always need 100% fully committed parental participation or it won't happen because that's the lie, too. There are lots of children who get services in school-based programs, in clinical settings where parents are not really let's 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 say it like this they're not they're not prevented they're not it's not prohibitive that they can participate you know they people aren't saying you absolutely may not come in but it's strongly discouraged you know parents stay in the waiting room the kids go back to the therapy room with a the therapist and then they come out and have a little talk at the end or they come out and say hey see you next week there are kids who make good progress with that. Can't really, as early interventionists and home-based people and, you know, family-friendly people, we can't really say children are not going to make progress unless parents are fully committed. We know that it's better when parents do that. We know that, that parents also get better at facilitating language, and that makes our job a lot easier. But we can't really get on our little high horses either and say, if parents aren't doing everything, that that's the only problem, because that's not really true. So I love getting parents involved from the beginning, and I love doing that with not just them bringing the child and watching, but for me, giving them things to do, because they're with that kid a lot more often than we will ever be, and they know their children a lot better than we ever will. So if I can get any semblance of something new going on in that very first session, I do it because it gets parents super, super excited, and then they believe in me, and they believe in the process, and it also gives them hope. They're thinking, yes, you know, this was a good decision on my part. I'm glad I went ahead and pursued this speech therapy. Gosh, I trust in my gut here, and it, it's really a confirmation of their instincts and so you want to tell a parent that too you want to say oh my goodness I'm so proud of you you are doing such a good job getting her enrolled in therapy at such an early age you know sometimes parents will wait and wait and wait and you didn't you just recognize that there's an issue and you got right in here and so you want to do a lot of that at the beginning too to really make a parent feel good about their decision to pursue therapy because a lot of times that's an internal conflict that they've had or um Maybe even, <laughs> this has happened a lot between moms and dads. One parent strongly feels like there's a concern and one parent strongly feels like there's not. And so you really want to reinforce that you are you are happy that they sought your services and you are happy that they are coming forward and doing something and not waiting and waiting and waiting. Now, sometimes we'll see kids who, who we decide don't really need ongoing services. And in that case, you really want to allay a parent's fears and, and really say, that is so great that you were worried, but listen, here's how she stacks up and here's how she compares with other children her own age. And this is a, you know, a really mild problem or she's within the realm of normal development. Let's talk about what your expectations are and then let me tell you what kids are normally doing and then let's kind of compare and see how it is. That's one of the chart from Let's Talk About Talking will really, really help you too. If you're seeing a kid initially at the beginning, and there are 11 pre-linguistic skills on that chart. And let's say she has mastered 10 and a half of those. <laughs> you can say to a parent, look, this is pretty mild 
compared to the children that I normally see. And it's not to say that she's not, that she doesn't have a little bit of weakness in this area. These are some things that we can do, but I want you to quit worrying about her so much. You know, that doesn't happen as often as the other way where parents come in and think things are pretty mild when they may be a lot more um, serious or complex than a parent even understands, but it will happen sometimes. And so you want to be sure that you are addressing those things in the beginning. So let's get back to Emma's question. Do you try to give parents something to go away with? Yes. And let me tell you, I keep it at the lowest level possible for success. (laughs) So usually for me, uh, similar caseload, it's a new social game or two for the parents so that they start to focus on engagement and interaction. And here's why. That is the one area, even if a kid is already a little bit verbal, if we can do everything we can to really strengthen that social emotional connection and that engagement and interaction piece with other people, it really sets the stage for uh, communication skills to just blossom. And so I talk to parents about that a lot, and I try to teach one or two new little routines. Now, guys, it may be something as simple as giving five. A parent may not have ever tried that game before or bumping fists or a social game like row, row your boat or ring around the rosies. Again, we're not talking about coming up with something completely original all the time. Just something that would be easy to get going. It might be just teaching a parent how to do a game like tickles or peekaboo or Take something that they already like to do and build on that. Let's say that the child really, really likes books and the parents have been trying to get them to do things with books and you think, oh, let's tweak this a little bit. Instead of making this an expressive task, let's make it a receptive task. And so you can say to a parent, listen, instead of trying to get him to say words, I don't want you to do that. I want you just to say, ask him questions about where things are. You know, we've got to get him in the habit of responding and get him to be a little more participatory and sometimes for kids even a little more compliant (laughs) in that they do many, 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 many things we ask them to do. And so it might not be something that's a completely new skill. We just want them to do more of it so that they really get in the habit of staying with their parents and playing with them and being right there engaged in the same activity. And for some parents, they do that all the time. That won't be new. But for some parents, it will be new because they really haven't been able to get their child to sit and do an activity with them where it's not super frustrating or they just haven't had much success. So maybe building on an existing routine, figuring out what a child can already do or what the parents already feel like is is going well and thinking, oh, you know, they already, both parties here already like this. They already know what to do. Let me add just one new little piece and see how much success we can get with that. You know, some kids, it might be imitation with objects imitating actions with toys. And again, that's going to look and feel like play. So you'll talk to parents and you'll say, this week, I really want you to make it a priority that you set aside some specific time every single day so that you were down on the floor playing with him. And I want you to do these kinds of things. Let's try to play, you know, two or three little toys before you guys are going to get up and be finished with it. You know, let's see if we can just get that that one-on-one time going this week. So it might be something like that. It might be that you can teach a kid a sign or two in the first session and really jumpstart that whole expressive language piece. And then you can talk to parents about 
how gestures are so important. It might be that a kid is already talking a little bit, and you may say, all right, what I'll, or the parent may say, she's just had three words, but I don't hear them very often. Instead of trying to get some new words, you'll say, hey, let's just increase the frequency of the words that she already said. So talk to me about these words. Talk to me about what they are. Let's think about very specific things that you can do every single day to hear those words more often. What are some activities that you can do? If she says the word ball, but she only says it when you play with her outside in the backyard, let's think about what other ball toys you might have that you can play in the house. Let's put some balls in the bathtub. Let's get her to play with the ball with her brother. And so, you know, you can just brainstorm while you're sitting right to really getting that expectation of moving forward and success with what you what is very, very likely that they're going to be able to do because you don't want to start off with something that's completely unrealistic and a parent is waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for some kind of improvement. And again, for some parents, they do really think that you're just going to wave that magic speech therapy wand and they'll be talking that very first session. And so that's why using a tool like uh, the chart from Let's Talk About Talking Really, uh, use something visual or the chart from uh, my book, Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers, looking at that chart and saying, well, here, here's what she's doing. And again, you're being super visual about it and a little bit more objective so that a parent can look at that and see, gosh, you know, talking is not going to be super realistic right now for her. Let's focus on these other things. So be sure that you're doing that. Um, there are going to be some kids, again, that you're, you'll have to look really hard <laughs> and think, oh, what can I do to get something new here or get something that I can strengthen and the, the parents can work on and they can see some definitive improvements. That that may take some, some real heavy thinking on your part. And sometimes that's hard to do in the middle of a session. So just sort of, again, when you're reading that case history, think what might be something that I can teach him how to do in this first session that he doesn't already know how to do or that he's done a little bit but not as often as we would like. And that, that's where you'll start. That's what you'll give as your homework there. All right. She says, how long does your first session usually go for? 45 minutes to an hour or longer? Or do you do diagnostic intervention and work it out over five to six weeks? And, again, this just depends on how I'm Texas. If it's going to be a weekly kid, that I'm going to see weekly or every couple of weeks, we might just keep that first appointment at the same length as our normal appointments will be, so close to about an hour. If it's a kid who's coming from out of town, certainly the first assessment is going to be closer to a couple of hours. But most of the time, I would say that my assessments, that first visit usually lasts around 90 minutes, and then we back that off to 45 minutes to 60 minutes after that. And so you'll just have to see, again, it depends on what your requirements are and it again it sounds like Emma's getting to make her own rules which is what you get to do in private practice but it just you'll figure it out you'll know with a kid that it may be a really complex history kid you'll want to see a little bit longer at the beginning hey a kid who's doing great with me I do if it's 45 minutes and he, they are just hitting their stride and I think man 15 more minutes 20 more minutes, 30 more minutes, I'm going to get a lot out of this kid, boy, I go for it because I think that's so great. The opposite is true, too. Let's just say that the child is having a horrible day, that nothing is going right. I would much rather cut that initial visit really, really short so that he doesn't have a negative experience with me. And so that, again, like I said before, we don't get started off on the wrong foot. So use your own judgment on that. 
and just again it really is going to vary by kid all right do you always write a report with your assessment results yes <laughs> because i think parents like that it gives them a visual even if it's just one page and I, when i was doing a lot of uh, consulting it's going to be a really different situation than a kid that i'm going to send it on a weekly basis so maybe those weekly kids who've already been evaluated out the wazoo you know they've already seen five or six people before they come to me it might just be a one pager where i'm outlining and summarizing things that have happened but warn a parent about that ahead of time because if they are used to getting 20 page initial reports and they get your little dinky one page report even if you have provided more information than the whole 20 pages of blah, 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 parents may not expect it, and they may somehow mistake quantity for quality. <laughs> so warn them about it and say, this will just be a one-page little summary. I just want to keep us on the same page. And here's what I do. I might send it to the parent, or I try to send it to the parent before that second visit, but I always review it at that second visit. I always want them to see what I've said about their child and when we're really talking about goals and strategies. Now, if you have taken my course, Is It Autism? on part two, there's a good uh, representation of that process where I've done an assessment with a little girl and you'll see some of that initial uh, session where I'm playing with her and really getting to know her and ask her questions. And then in the parent coaching section of that course, You'll see when I go back and have the report and I'm reviewing it with the parent and we're talking about it and I'm saying, did you notice that she doesn't follow very many directions? And even though she has lots of words, she's not really understanding all that she's saying. And this is a little girl that was like a like. And so we talked about, you know, we, she doesn't really understand many action words and uh or verbs and location words or prepositions and so get real specific about what your goals are don't just say we want to get her to talk you know of course you do <laughs> that's why the parents are coming to see you but that's when I get super specific and this is also the time really in that second visit where you can clarify any potential issues that you think a parent is going to have regarding unrealistic expectations, especially about talking. And this is, this is the one thing that we speech pathologists struggle with on a daily basis where parents will, again, really, really, really expect that you are somehow going to be able to pull off a miracle. And, and you know, the speech therapy thing, six visits and we're all done. And that is just so completely unrealistic for most of the children that we're seeing. So you'll want to address that right away. And here's how I do it. And if you've <laughs> taken my course, Early Speech Language Development, Taking Theory to the Floor, and maybe it's in some of the other ones, but I know it's in that one. A lot of times with parents, this is exactly what I say. Talking for him is going to be a long, long-term goal. <laughs> And that persodic little difference there really lets the parent know, boy, he's not ready yet. We've got a lot to cover. And again, that's where the charts that I've recommended, go back and really look at those things so that you can nail your explanation to the parents and say, here's why I don't think he's going to talk for a while because he's still really struggling with term taking. He's still not as socially engaged as we want him to be. His attention span is super short, so he's not giving his brain time to process and remember what these words mean. And so if he doesn't understand what these words mean, he's not going to be able to say them. And again, really understand your explanations, really, really for language development. And let me I'm just going to say it one more time. That chart 
from, let's talk about talking, will help you do that. Because there's a column with the skill. There's a column with how this looks. There's a column with why it's important for language development. And then you've got your beginning strategy. So with that one page, you can practically run that first couple of sessions because you've got your information just right there and it's written in a format that parents are really going to be able to understand. And so again, I like a report and even if I'm not giving more than a one-page summary, I still go ahead and give some handouts too because I do think information is so important for parents. And if it's not something that I've copied and prepared ahead of time, I'll say, I'm going to shoot you an email with this link because I really want you to read this little handout. And this is what we're going to use for the next several weeks over therapy. And this is what I say to parents too. I say, hey, I'm going to ask you about that. <laughs> know that when I see you next, the second question after how are y'all or how are you, it's going to be how did it go? So I'm going to want to know what happened when you read this little piece and then you implemented it. Or most of the time, it's not even about that. It's, you know, I'll, I'll review, I'll say, you know, today she, we really worked on following directions during play. And, you know, the words that we worked on were those location words like up and down and in and out and following directions based on those words. And so I'm, I want you to do this at home. And so we'll walk through, you know, when you're in the bathtub, maybe you could do this when you guys are playing with these toys. Let's talk about it this way. You know, when you're at mealtime, here are the, how you can use those little target words. And, you know, we're not going to worry so much about her saying those words just yet, but I want her to really understand and follow these directions. And I'm, I'm going to ask you about it. <laughs> so be warned. This is my routine. I'm always going to say, how did it go? So I want you to have something ready so that we can discuss it. And I tell them, this is not that I'm your teacher or that I am the therapy police. This is so that I can help you. And if I don't understand what your struggles are and what's hard for your child and for you, I can't be very much help. And so I'm really setting the stage from the very, very beginning that we're going to be talking about what they did and what worked and what didn't work so that I can help them tweak that. And that that is really the purpose of our visit, even more so than getting the child to do new things and say new things. Certainly that's, that's, again, the primary part. It would be silly to think that that's not the main reason we're seeing children. But I have to know what's going on at home and I have to know how parents really, really, really feel about how their child is moving along and about their own competence and their confidence in their ability to follow through with these recommendations. And I just tell them, I'm going to ask you and ask you and ask you. So let's just get in the habit of the, at the beginning of knowing that those questions are coming and that I'm going to want really specific details. You can't just say, when I say, how did it go? You can't just say good and me move on. No, <laughs> I want to know really specific examples. Like the little girl that I was giving the example with receptive language, I'm going to want you to tell me how it went at bath time and how it went at meal time. And what other times did you play and with that? And did she seem to understand? And what percentage of the time, about half the time, less than half, more than half, is she understanding these things? And then, you, you know, you'll you'll follow through with those same activities in therapy. And, you know, I never let parents leave a session without a wrap-up or a summary because I just feel like that's such an important part of the session, kind of wrapping our hands around and our heads around 
what went on and what our what our focuses were. And I just think it does a good. Uh, it's just a good way to end it with looking about what you did. You know, today we really worked on da 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 da. And now remember, we've already talked about this, but this is what I want you to do at home this week. And remember, I'm going to say, how did it go when you come back? So I, you know, I want that little follow up. So. Be sure that you're doing that. All right. So I cannot believe that we I did just that one question in this show. And then on the other hand, I can totally believe that I just did that one question in this show. Uh, so we will save the other question for next time with uh, the from the other therapist who's asking about a child and using oral alerting activities. And if you're a parent, that probably makes no sense to you. But you speech therapists know what kind of what kind of debate that's going to be the old uh, oral motor conundrum debate so we'll do that on next show and I apologize to Allie who's the therapist that asked this question I even emailed her and said hey I'm going to do this question today and I didn't get to it so Allie I apologize and we will do that next time uh, so thanks so much for watching or not watching but listening to today's show and I hope that you will be able to take these um, the things that we talked about and apply them in your own practice. Have a wonderful week and I will uh, be back with you next time. Thanks so much. The music's not playing. Not sure what's happening with that, but that's okay too. Have a great week. Bye-bye.